The Week in Doubt, episode 268. Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, the host of The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And just to let you know up front, this episode is going to be completely unscripted once again. I've been so busy at work, etc., that I haven't had any time to write one, and I haven't even laid out an outline for this episode. And I know we're skeptics and we don't go in for that superstitious stuff, but uh, let's keep our fingers crossed and I'll try not to be too long-winded, and we'll see how things go. I guess I'll take care of some listener feedback first, or should I say viewer feedback? This comes from YouTube. And this particular comment is in response to the segment I did last week on that guy who was defending Roy Moore, suggesting that it would have been preferable for Moore to lie about having preyed on underage girls if it increased his chances of getting elected to the Senate. And while talking about that, the subject of Christian morality came up. And so the commenter says in their YouTube handle is ain't quite right. And they say, so where does the Bible say don't have sex with young girls? Ray Moron could rape his 12-year-old slave girl. It wouldn't violate their crazy-ass Bible. And I responded, good point. A lot of backwards misogynistic stuff in the OT. And one of Moore's own defenders brought up the young age of Mary and other biblical females. I think generally Christians like to think of themselves as being moral and family-oriented, protective of children, etc. And yet, as you point out, plenty of examples of the sexualization of what we would consider underage girls in the Bible. And in fairness, as far as Mary, the mother of Jesus, being underage goes, I believe that's actually never stated in the Bible— but it seems to be the consensus of historians and biblical scholars based on what are thought to have been the social norms of the time. I think according to scholars, she probably would have been somewhere between 12 and 14 or 15 at the time of her betrothal, which would have been, I guess, the norm for the day. And then, of course, and you may already know this if you're a fellow religious documentary junkie, there's that famous word Alma, a Hebrew word for uh, a young maiden of childbearing age. It was then translated into the Greek as, I think, Parthenos, and that always makes me think of the Greek goddess Athena, uh, because we have the Parthenon, we have Athena Parthenos, that uh, legendary statue from antiquity. But anyway, I believe it was thought that the word Alma meant virgin, but it turns out in Hebrew there's actually a different word, I think it's Betula, um, that is used to specifically imply or indicate virginity. And then whenever the subject of the treatment of young women or girls in the Bible comes up, I automatically always think of numbers. Um, Was it? uh, I'll look it up. Numbers 31, 7 through 18. And 31, 9 says, And the children of Israel took all the women of Midian captives and their little ones and took the spoil of all their cattle and all their flocks and their goods. And they burnt all their cities wherein they dwelt and all their goodly castles with fire. And then if you jump down to verse 13, 
And Moses and Eleazar the priests and all the princes of the congregation went forth to meet them without the camp. And Moses was wroth with the officers of the host, with the captains over thousands and the captains over hundreds, which came from the battle. And Moses said unto them, Have you saved all the women alive? Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman that hath known man by lying with him. But all the women children that have not known a man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. And as uh, Christopher Hitchens used to joke, and I'm paraphrasing, we can probably guess why they wanted these young virgins. Uh, they probably weren't going to keep them as pets. They probably had something else in mind for them. So I figure I'd move on to some news. And this is a story that caught my attention earlier in the day. It, it looks pretty cool. Live science. Eight times flat earthers tried to challenge science and failed in 2017. And it looks like it's by Stephanie Pappas, I think it is, and it's dated December 20th, so today. And they have a nice illustration of a flat earth here. <laughs> and it says, many flat earthers believe the earth is a disk surrounded by an ice wall. In the stew of false information and conspiracy theories that swirls online, perhaps no idea is as flummoxing as the belief in a flat earth. Flat earthers believe the earth is a flat disk ringed by an ice wall. All those elegant models of a round earth that perfectly explain seasons, eclipses, sunrises, and sunsets. Lies and cover-ups, they say. Pictures of the round earth from space. Government conspiracies. The fact that you can see ships disappearing hull first over the curve of the horizon with your own eyes. Well, flat earthers claim to see something different. It's been a big publicity year for flat earthers who have gained celebrity backers, promised death-defying stunts in the name of their theory, and held their first conference. Here are eight times the conspiracy theorists have gotten their names out there in 2017. So it starts with number one, Shaq attacks Earth's roundness. Basketball player Shaquille O'Neal was roundly mocked online when he announced on his podcast in March that Earth is, quote-unquote, flat to me. He went on, and in quotes once again, I do not go up and down at a 360-degree angle. And all that stuff about gravity, have you looked outside Atlanta lately and seen all these buildings? You mean to tell me that China is under us? China is under us. It's not. The world is flat. A few days later, though, Shaq announced that he was just messing with everyone. I'm joking, you idiots. But people who think the world is flat aren't necessarily primed to believe their ears when they hear a beloved celebrity saying he was just making a joke of their theories. A quick stroll through the Flat Earth Society forums suggests that some true believers now think Shaq was simply pressured into retracting his statements and that he's on their side. Okay, number two, rapper B.O.B. crowdfunds a satellite. The rapper B.O.B., also known as Bobby Ray Simmons Jr., is famous for having gotten into a Twitter fight with physicist Neil deGrasse Tyson over whether the Earth is round. B.O.B. raised his profile further this year with an attempt to crowdfund his own rocket launch to carry a camera into space to look for the curvature of the Earth. Flat Earthers, of course, don't believe in the Earth's curvature, which for the record becomes visible to the human eye at about 35,000 feet. 
11,000 meters elevation, but only given at least a 60-degree field of view according to a 2008 paper, making it hard to detect from a typical passenger airline window. Two months after the fundraiser was posted, B.O.B. had reached 6,883 of his one million goal, the first thousand of which he donated himself, according to his GoFundMe page. To be honest, given how many flat earthers there are online and how popular rap is, I'm surprised he didn't raise more. Okay, so now for number three, Kyrie Irving gets on board. I think that's how you pronounce it, Kyrie, right? What is it with NBA players? Kyrie Irving of the Kelton. I almost said Celtics. I live in the Boston area. I should know this, even though I'm not huge in the sports. It's the Celtics. And this reminds me of when I was taking a mythology class back in high school. And the vice principal sat in on this reading we did. And I was reading about the ancient Celts. And around that time, I had seen a documentary on the ancient Celts that was narrated by Donald Sutherland. And I believe he actually pronounced Celts, Celts. And I think that might be the less common pronunciation, but I'm not sure it's necessarily entirely wrong. It usually is pronounced uh, Celts or Celtic. So I decided to go with Donald Sutherland and I said, uh, I, and while well, reading, I said Celts. And the vice principal made fun of me in front of the whole class and said, no, the Celts play at the garden. So, uh, I mean, you can't win, man. But anyway, it's the Celtics. So, uh, Kyrie Irving of the Celtics has had a complex relationship with the Flat Earth in 2017. As SB Nation breaks it down, the point guard declared the Earth flat on a podcast in February, and then returned to the same podcast in March to say he was just trying to start a conversation. In September, he was asked by CBS Boston what he really believed and said his original statements were just an quote-unquote exploration tactic and that people should do their own research. In October, he again floated the notion that the question of whether Earth is round is up for debate, saying he didn't know whether pictures of Earth from space were real. And it is true that I believe I've heard on numerous occasions that often images of the Earth that we see from space are actually kind of um, composites, but that doesn't mean that they're quote-unquote fake. Okay, so where were we? Number four, solar eclipse fuels conspiracy theories. Eclipses are moments when it becomes really possible to look up and remember that you live on a spinning ball. Well, unless you're a flat earther, then they're proof, duh, that the earth is flat. Flat Earthers used the August 21st total solar eclipse that crossed the contiguous United States as quote-unquote evidence of their beliefs. According to Forbes, they argue that the west-to-east eclipse path was evidence of something fishy because the sun moves across the sky from east to west, right? Actually, the moon orbits Earth from west to east, so the moon's shadow follows the path of the moon. Flat Earthers also argued using flashlights and coins that the moon's shadow should have been bigger than the moon itself. The problem with this argument is that the sun is an extremely distant, diffuse source of light, not a nearby point source, so the flashlight analogy doesn't fit. Instead, the moon is like a tiny speck against the backdrop of the sun's massive light. 
C. Number 5. Homemade Rocket Launch Fizzles. In November, Flat Earther Mad Mike Hughes announced plans to launch himself 1,800 feet above the Mojave Desert in a steam-powered rocket he made out of salvaged parts. His plan was to attempt to photograph the lack of curvature of the horizon to quote-unquote prove the Earth's flatness. The curvature of the horizon is subtle enough as to not be visible until at least 35,000 feet, so it's unclear exactly what Hughes hoped to prove. Nevertheless, his homemade rocket cost a reported 20000 making it quite a deal compared with B.O.B.'s estimated 1 million rocket launch scheme. Unfortunately for Hughes, his launch was to take place on public land, and the Bureau of Land Management shut him down at the last minute. And the fact that he got shut down at the last minute, I'm sure that he or other flat earthers will conveniently work that into the conspiracy somehow. And on a somewhat separate note, I stopped taking my inhaled steroids about two weeks ago because they were making me hoarse. And my voice still sounds like I'm gargling with gin and razor blades. Eh, what can you do? Number six, flat earthers hold a conference. The internet has undoubtedly expanded flat earth believers' reach. The Economist recently reported that based on Google Trends data, interest in quote-unquote flat earth as a search term has risen significantly over the past two years. Flat earthers are now meeting in person, too. The first ever Flat Earth International Conference, really, man, in, in the year 2017, was held this year in Raleigh, North Carolina. It was hosted by Cryptos Media and the Creation Cosmology Institute, both of which use religious overtones in their flat earth philosophy. The organizer of the conference told Live Science that about 500 people attended. Once again, with the popularity of the Flat Earth movement, I'm surprised it wasn't significantly more than that. I mean, relatively speaking, rounding up 500 people for something isn't too bad. But for a conference, eh, yeah, it's not that great. And I think I've posited this on the show before, but I wouldn't be surprised if YouTube played a big role in the rising popularity of uh, flat eartherism or whatever you want to call it. Because as a YouTuber myself, well, primarily I think of myself as a podcaster, but in an attempt to try to reach more people, I also post episodes of the show on YouTube. And I'm also a self-confessed YouTube junkie. I, I consume a lot of YouTube content. So I'm kind of familiar with uh, quote-unquote YouTube culture. And YouTube is just flooded with flat-earth content. And uh, it, it is extremely popular. And I think the fact that these ideas, and this goes for conspiracy theories in general, are available in the form of easily accessed videos, which link to other similar videos, allows them to spread that much more rapidly and efficiently. You can get lost in a YouTube rabbit hole just going deeper and deeper watching these conspiracy videos. And for someone who's primed to believe, I imagine exposure to all these videos can have quite a powerful effect. Okay, but onward. Number seven. Earth is flat, Mars is round. As founder of SpaceX, Elon Musk knows a little something about the challenges of launching rockets off an obloid sphere into space. So when he tweeted in November, why is there no flat Mars society, he probably didn't expect an actual answer. 
Well, he didn't really get one either, but he did get a response straight from the Flat Earth Society itself. Hi, Elon. Thanks for the question. Unlike the Earth, Mars has been observed to be round. We hope you have a fantastic day. Why does the Flat Earth Society believe in direct observations of Mars' roundness, but not Earth's? Who knows, but Flat Earthers tend to have complicated, often contradictory, explanations of how astronomy works in the absence of a round Earth. The Flat Earth Society pushes a view in which the sun rotates over the top of the disk of the Earth like a baby's mobile at a much closer distance than the 93 million miles, 150 million kilometers, away that it actually is. The other planets, which in this theory are also much smaller and closer than they are in reality, orbit the sun, the Flat Earth Society believes. Okay, and now for the final one, number eight. Another athlete asks questions. Whatever it is in the water at the NBA is apparently affecting the cricket world, too. Former English cricketer Freddie Flintoff recently hit the tabloid circuit with his opinion that the Earth is flat, or possibly turnip-shaped. Okay, sure. Flintoff discussed his belief on his BBC Radio 5 podcast in November. Asking why the water in the ocean doesn't wobble if the Earth is hurtling through space. It's because Earth's rotational speed is basically constant, forgiving an imperceptible slowdown of about 2 milliseconds per century. The oceans move with a constant spin, just as a passenger in a car traveling down the highway moves at the same speed as the car. Rotation does cause Earth to bulge at the equator, though, which is why the planet is an obloid shape rather than a perfect sphere. Flintoff said he got his ideas from listening to a Flat Earth podcast. So YouTube and, uh, podcasts. And I imagine some crazy-ass blogs tucked away in dark corners of the internet. Before editing, I'm about 17 minutes in, and I'm feeling quite knackered, as they say. Is that something they say on the other side of the pond? <laughs> uh, I was contemplating not doing any more news stories, but uh, maybe I'll try to do a another one. And this one is about Cardinal Bernard Law. Now, I'm, I'm in the Boston area, and I grew up in the Boston area, and this guy was quite a big deal, as I was saying on the Weekend Out Facebook page. And I remember being a little kid, and I've been drawing since I was a kid, and my grandmother wanted me to draw a picture of him for her. And uh, I did, and she loved it, and I guess she gave it to him. And I was joking to, and I, he passed away, he was 86. And I was joking that I wish uh, I knew where that picture was so I can add some devil horns to it. Horrible thing to say, I, I imagine, right in the wake of someone's death, but you might not think so as much once I uh, fill you in. So this is from the Huff Post, and it's entitled Cardinal Bernard Law, or Bernard Law, Boston Archbishop who was forced to resign over clergy sex abuse scandal dead at 86. Prior to his resignation, Law spent two decades as one of the highest-ranking Catholic officials in the United States. And this story actually comes from the Huffington Post via Reuters. And it's also dated December 20th. Vatican City, Reuters, Cardinal Bernard Law, the former Archbishop of Boston, who became a symbol of the Roman Catholic Church's worldwide sexual abuse scandals, died on Wednesday, the Vatican said. He was 86. Law, whose resignation from his Boston Post in 2002 shocked the church and brought abuse into the open, had been living in Rome and was in declining health in recent years. The Vatican did not give a cause of death, but sources close to Law, who died in a hospital in Rome, said he had been suffering from the complications of diabetes, liver failure, and a buildup of fluids around the heart known as pericardial effusion. 
Law was Archbishop of Boston for 18 years when Pope John Paul, who in 1984 had appointed Law to run one of the most prestigious and wealthy American archdioceses, reluctantly accepted his resignation on December 13, 2002, after a tumultuous year in church history. A succession of devastating stories by the Boston Globe Spotlight team showed how priests who sexually abused children had been moved from parish to parish for years under Law's tenure without informing parishioners or law authorities. The resignation sent shockwaves through the American church and began a trickle-down effect around the world, as the cover-up techniques used in Boston were discovered to have been used in country after country. It is my fervent prayer that this action may help the Archdiocese of Boston to experience the healing, reconciliation, and unity which are so desperately needed, Law said at the time. To all those who have suffered from my shortcomings and mistakes, I both apologize and from them beg forgiveness. Law had offered to step down several times before the Pope accepted his resignation. It talks about how the Boston Globe really tackling the scandal was the inspiration for the uh, 2015 film Spotlight. The situation in Boston turned out to be the tip of an iceberg of abuse and its cover-up, where churchmen preferred protecting the reputation of the institution rather than the innocence of children. Thousands of cases came to light around the world as investigations encouraged long-silent victims to go public, shattering the church's reputation in places such as Ireland and forcing it to pay some $2 billion in compensation. Six months after his resignation, the Massachusetts Attorney General's office announced that law and others would not face criminal charges. It says in 2004, Pope John Paul appointed law to be archpriest of the Rome Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore. I don't know, and I'm Italian, and I'm still butchering this. One of the four major basilicas of Christendom, whose gold leaf ceiling is said to be made from the first batch of the precious metal Columbus brought back from America. He is likely to be buried there. Law, I imagine, not Columbus. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of disturbing. Instead of, you know, the church really making an example of him, uh, they finally, after several attempts, and I guess that was somewhat good of him to at least offer repeatedly to resign, you know, they finally accept his resignation, but instead of being an outcast, you know, for failing to protect children, they make him an archpriest of one of the four major basilicas. It's kind of strange. I noticed they don't say Pope John Paul II. They just said Pope John Paul. For some reason, uh, that was uh, bugging me. But um, yeah, there you go. And then maybe I'll do one more. I was finding it hard to resist. Remember last year, uh, I think the Christmas special was devoted to the subject of the Yule Goat. And I talked about how in this one Swedish city uh, or whatever, um, year after year, this poor Yule Goat, man, <laughs> you know, people just kept trying to burn down this gigantic Yule Goat, which was traditionally erected for the holidays, you know. And um, here's a story from National Geographic. One town's fight to save their 40-foot Yule Goat. Oh, so maybe it's a, a technically a town and not a city. And I think it's pronounced Havla. Sweden's Havla goat has been an annual holiday tradition since 1966, but the massive straw structure doesn't always survive until Christmas. The Havla goat lives a dangerous life, says Maria Wahlberg, or Wahlberg, his spokesperson. Okay, the wooden goat has a spokesperson. But we are full... Well, I guess it makes sense. He can't talk for himself. But we are, but we are full of hope that he will survive this year. 
Wahlberg or Wahlberg is on the committee that oversees the construction of Havlabakken. And that's the name, I believe, for the Havla goat. The name given to the 42-foot, 3-ton straw goat built every year in Havla, Sweden, since 1966. This year, if tradition holds, Havla has about a 50-50 chance of being burned to the ground or having a rod driven through him or being hit by a car. That's because destroying the Havla goat has become nearly as regular a tradition as constructing it in the first place. Every year for the past 51 years, townspeople cautiously wait to see if an arsonist will prevail. If the first goat never had burned down, you never know what could have happened the next year, as Wahlberg says. Every December, the town spends approximately 1,000 person hours constructing the goat from ropes, pine, and other flammable materials. It's built to coincide with the Christian holiday Advent, which this year fell on December 3rd. And it's taken down on New Year's Day, if it survives that long. Yule goats are a common motif in Scandinavian Christmas traditions, and the straw goat in Havla is meant to be a large embodiment of that Christmas character. Exactly why goats are so strongly associated with the winter holiday is debated, but it's rooted in pagan celebrations. Now skip down a bit. To protect this year's goat, she says the town has increased security. Ex-cons. At first I'm like, ex-cons as an ex-cons? I guess, yeah. People from a Swedish program that reintegrates criminals into society are guarding the goat. Several large fences have also been added, and a live webcam of the goat is running 24-7. For some reason, I just got the image in my head of the Havla Bakken putting on some provocative show for the webcam. But uh, for now, the Havla goat is still standing. But Wahlberg says if it's burned again, they'll continue the tradition in 2018, adding, we will never stop to build our world-famous Christmas symbol. But if you will pardon my French, I think it's pretty shitty that they, you know, they burn or try to destroy it every year. I, I mean, I imagine there's more people who want to see the thing survive the holidays than who want to see it destroyed. So, you know, why not just let it be? Unless there's become this kind of perverse dynamic where people kind of enjoy the suspense of waiting to see if it's going to be destroyed or not. I don't know. But with that, I guess I'll call this episode a wrap. Thanks, uh, guys, for listening as always. You know the drill. Please like the Facebook page. Please uh, follow the show on Twitter. Uh, you can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you want to support the show monetarily, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash theweekendout and, uh, you know, supporting the show for as little as 99 cents a month and stopping anytime you like. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time.